welcome to series two of my podcast, Innovation, where we get to hear from incredible women in science and technology who are from a diverse range of backgrounds, experiences, and all walks of life, really. My aim with the conversations that you'll hear on this show is to bring out the humanness of STEM. STEM is science, technology, engineering, and maths. I grew up in a very STEMI environment where my dad, who's an engineer, always encouraged my sisters and I to ask questions and be curious about the world around us. Let's face it, our planet is such a fascinating and incredible place, and I certainly wanted to understand how it all works. As a result, I qualified as a fluid dynamicist, having done an undergraduate in mechanical engineering, which basically taught me to look at the world in a very logical and rational way. By the end of my studies, I was able to mathematically model how turbulence works, and looking back, I think I started to believe that most things in life could be explained using equations. It was only after I graduated from university that life itself taught me that not everything is logical or predictable. Life is actually messy, chaotic and non-linear, so here on Innovation I wanted to hear how other women in STEM deal with that. I wanted to learn how they stay emotionally balanced and fit. This week I talked to Joe Sadler, a biological scientist who's working on biological methods that can basically help turn plastics that we've used into high value raw chemicals. So my name's Joe Sadler and I'm a BBSRC Discovery Fellow at the University of Edinburgh where I work in the School of Biological Sciences. My work is all focused around developing new biological methods to sustainably upcycle post-consuming plastic into higher value um, chemicals. So this is quite unique because most of the research that's been done so far focuses on um, breaking down the plastic and then turning it into more plastic or um, melting down the plastic and reforming the the plastic molecules into other products such as for pets, such as um, textiles and clothing. So actually one of the biggest uses for second generation pet is going into polyester materials. And that's fantastic because it, it, you know, it does use these materials and it maintains some value within the, their life cycle. However, we're still ending up with plastic at the end of the day when you put your clothes in the wash, you know, we're getting lots of um, microfibers being released into the waterways, etc. So my approach is really to, to break the polymer chain down. So we're actually getting rid of the plastic and then turning it into higher value chemicals. Because plastic essentially is made up of carbon and hydrogen, isn't it? But we've basically got carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, which are the molecules of life, right? So it seems quite obvious that we should be able to use these as a feedstock for uh, microbial processes. We just need to engineer the technology to be able to do it. What you're dealing with through your research is so important to all of us. Um, How did you end up at this point? I actually trained as a chemist originally. and I was really interested, I've always been interested in sustainability. And I would say that has always been my main driver. So after my um, undergraduate degree, I went off and did a uh, industrial PhD at GlaxoSmithKline in collaboration with Strathclyde University, um, because I really wanted to be at the interface between industry and academia and real, really see you know, academic breakthroughs actually have real world impact. And I was really lucky to be placed in the synthetic biochemistry team, which deals with using biocatalysis and synthetic biology to um, improve the sustainability of their processes um, 
by using enzymes, et cetera, instead of um, chemical processes. And this really opened my eyes to the field of synthetic biology and biocatalysis. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. And this is really the direction I want to head in because microbes are just amazing chemists. They can do reactions of complexity, which you know synthetic chemists would you know, struggle for, for years on in the lab. Um, and they can do that, you know, in water at room temperature. It's just amazing. And what was it right in the beginning when you were a little girl that made you think this is the direction I want to go into? Actually, not one of those traditional people who kind of have always wanted to be a scientist. I actually wanted to be a doctor when I was at school. And then as it happens, I went to do a work experience placement in a, a genetics lab uh, at Oxford Uni, actually. And um, I just loved being in the lab. And I just loved that sort of fundamental research side of things. I loved you know, holding for pet and doing experiments. And I just thought, this is where I want to be. I'm actually less, I was, I felt less comfortable in the clinical environment and much more at home in the sort of fundamental hands-on research side of things. So um, I basically switched, changed my mind almost overnight and um, instead applied to do chemistry. I would certainly not have predicted this is where I would have been even 10 years ago, let alone when I was a little girl. Um, but it's just a series of, I don't know, serendipitous uh, things I guess that have that led me to this point yeah listening to my gut instincts as well and just you know really thinking what was right for me not was what was expected has it ever been apparent to you that you are in a minority as a woman in chemistry it's interesting if you look at the statistics of the gender ratio it's about 50 50 at undergraduate level but and then as you move up the career stages it just drops off and as soon as you get to um, pi level and professor level it's it's very much still um, weighted towards uh, male dominance if, if anything it makes me want to prove the system wrong it drives me further because i want to be a role model to other young women and say look this is possible you can you can do this you can still have a life you can still do all these other things um but we just enough of us need to do it to show that it's possible so that we inspire more people to, to kind of get behind it and what do you think it is that makes women drop off um as they go further along their career honestly i think one of the biggest disincentives is there's this myth that you can't have a family for example and be an academic and that's something which when I was doing my PhD and undergraduate level, loads of people said, oh, yeah, I left academia because I wanted to have a family and you can't do both. And oh, if you, you have to do it this way or that way. And I, did, I found the whole thing so worrying for such a long time until I just thought, you know what, it's fine. I'll make it work. It'll be fine. <laughs> I think there's also a lack of role models, um, a lack of female people doing the jobs that people want to do in high positions in universities. I think that's changing. Um, in fact, I've recently been appointed as a Chancellor's Fellow at Edinburgh, and when they um, released this round of things, they specifically said they wanted 50-50 um, gender ratio, which I think was a really positive step forward in actually trying to change this, this kind of culture for the future. Definitely. I mean, about time, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. great that there's a real um, push for gender parity, but it's kind of like... Yeah, it's been a long time coming, put it that way. Where do you come from? Like, what's your perspective on this topic that I think a lot of women almost fear talking about? Yeah, I think you're right. And um, you kind of, especially at work, even to other women, you almost don't want to bring it up because it makes you look like 
you know you're weaker and you wouldn't be able to cope or and that's a real problem people need to start having honest conversation because I think we all have exactly the same worries um and we just need to be more open about it I think and just say actually yeah I have the exact same thing I also have a slightly uh cavalier approach I'm just like you know what people have I know they're the minority but people have done it and people make it work and somehow I'll do the same and I will be open about it so that I can hopefully try and convince younger people that it is possible as well um I'm really lucky I've got a really supportive husband um and he you know he, he works three days a week so I'm in a kind of lucky position I think and that he would be able to hopefully um one day do support whether if that's if that's necessary I don't know everybody has that um but I think using any friends and family you have around you as well to support is is kind of crucial and I think you know I often think well you know there's going to be a huge sacrifice because if I have kids and then I can't spend enough time with them I'll obviously be riddled with guilt forever but also you know maybe they'd grow up to actually be proud of a parent that's you know really prove the system wrong if you like and manage to do something which a lot of people you know might, might have struggled to do uh, and maybe that could actually be an inspiration to someone so maybe you know it's worth it you're such an expert in something um you have so much knowledge in something very specific and it happens to be a topic that everyone feels affected by um is there a need to turn it into some um, highly uh, sort of money-making enterprise? For me, no, until it would actually genuinely benefit, you know, the world. Um, I, I, would, I would spin this out in the future if I thought that the technology was at a sufficiently advanced stage to actually be viable. Um, but it wouldn't be for the money. I don't think anyone goes into science for money. <laughs> it would be because I think that would be how the work could have the biggest impact and actually do some good, which is why we're doing this. And what is the ultimate impact you want to have through your research? The ultimate thing for really me at the moment is to, to try and get across this message that plastic should not be viewed as a waste product. It should be viewed as a resource because we can use it to obtain really valuable molecules, which would otherwise be obtained directly from petrochemicals, which are obviously running out. Um, and we can do that through really sort of sustainable, um, low impact processes. And I, I think that's a really important message to get across because you know we're scooping out millions of tons of plastic waste from oceans and rivers at the moment. And that's fantastic. That's the first stage in one of the first stages in tackling this crisis. But we then need to be able to do something with the plastic if we bury it, that's that's a crazy and that's a waste, in, in my opinion, because, you know, for a start, it will leach out into, you know, into the local environment. And secondly, it's it's made of carbon, as we've discussed, and it's made of these elements which we know we can, can use for something more useful. So we really need to change our mindset. And I think um, that's really what I want to get across. And I think what we've done so far is demonstrated that this is possible. And we now need to almost give a sort of toolbox of, of technologies to the community so that we can say, look at all these things we can do. Now it's time to start scaling up and make some of this happen. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given in your career or from friends, family? I find this question very difficult because I'm, you know, there are so many wonderful people who have 
supported me throughout my career and but no both um professionally and, and personally as well and you know every one of those has given me fantastic advice and it, you know it really helps you just on a day-to-day -day basis you know address some of the challenges that you face the kind of overarching thing is to really just follow your gut instinct um and really listen to listen to people say oh you maybe you should do this you should do that but you always just kind of have this feeling of what the right thing is for you to do and just to take other people's advice on board for sure but to really listen to that gut instinct because at the end of the day it's you know this is your career this is you know your life and you, you've got ownership over that and to to be driven by what really motivates you rather than what motivates other people I think is really what's going to kind of push you through that and to drive you towards success. Hmm. We live in a world where we're we're at risk of being very swayed by other people's opinions, what we should be doing, expectations, um, things like that. How do you keep yourself sort of mentally strong and fit in your own power? So I, I try to do things which I know will sort of almost mentally rest me from work, if you like. Um, so for example, you know, in my spare time, I try to do things which will take my mind off work just to kind of give my brain a rest. So I like to walk up hills. I like to make pots or to play the violin, whatever. But I, I just need to give my time, my, my brain time to rest, if you like. And actually, sometimes when you're doing these things, that's when the best ideas come to you because, you know, you're switched off. You're not actively thinking about a problem, but you'll be like, you know, near the top of a mountain and suddenly you're just like, oh, yeah, that's that's how I should do this thing. Um, and actually, that's so refreshing and it just it gives you so much perspective as well. Um, and I would say also just, you know, using your support network, uh, your friends and family and your colleagues, people are generally, you know, kind and they want to support you. They want to see you succeed. And I think, you know, actually letting people and letting people help you is also really important. So nice. Um, what has been the most humbling experience you've ever had in your life? Um, oh, that's tricky. <laughs> I have to say, I've been just just sort of my recent experiences. I've been very humbled by the response to this this recent Berlin work. Um, I certainly did not expect the level of um, attention that it's received, and it's been a, a wonderful surprise, if you like. And I've really been humbled by just the number of people who have got in touch to say, "Oh, this is really cool," and um, you know, can we chat about it? And and that's, that's really, really gratifying. And, and it is humbling as well, because these are people who are experts in their fields as well. And the fact that they've taken the time to, to read my work and to, to get in contact is, is amazing. So um, I'm extremely grateful to all of them for their, you know, for their interest in it. What would you consider to be your superpower? Possibly, people have said before that I'm quite enthusiastic and um, I think that's been an advantage in a lot of situations. So certainly when I've been presenting work, for example, you know, um, especially during my PhD and postdocs, I've, people seemed to like the fact that I seemed quite enthusiastic about what I was doing. Um, and that seems to have helped because I think it helps to really engage people in what, what I've been doing. So I'd say that's probably, um, that's probably a, maybe a superpower, I'm not sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I definitely, I feel like really excited about your research just because of the way you describe it, because you just seem so passionate, like genuinely passionate about it. So I second that as your super. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> How important have role models and mentors been for you? 
for me having people who say joe you can do this you know you can you could be an academic you know you, you are capable of this that has made all the difference to me that's not just been one person that's been people who have you know been involved with you know old supervisors colleagues etc at various stages of my career but just these little comments that they've made um really make all the difference and you know big when i was making big kind of career decisions sorry about the cat meowing um when i was making big career decisions um you know a few years ago those little comments people saying don't give up you know you you can do this that that stuck in my mind and it was sometimes those things that really just was you know clinched it for me i was like right okay i'm gonna give it a go because if i don't try i'll never know if you know if, if i leave academia and do something else which i'm sure would be fantastic and i could have a great career but i would always wonder what could i have done if i'd stayed and it was those people those role models really made the difference and i think convinced me to try yeah you mentioned you want to be a role model and possibly mentor to um younger sort of chemists and people following in a similar path to you what do you think makes a good mentor um this is quite interesting because i've actually set up a, an outreach program in schools which is which is all based around mentoring junior colleagues and trying to get new people into science and so um and, and one of the roles is is actually being a mentor and it's very much i think about not telling people what to do but just sort of being a sounding board and a facilitator and guide a, more of a kind of you know, signposter etc um, to you know, to your colleagues, everybody is different at the end of the day, and I don't think you can impose your experiences on somebody else's life because everybody's got their own ambitions, they've got their own sort of ideal, if you like. But it's really working out what that is for each individual, and then helping them to facilitate, you know, facilitate them to get there and where they want to be. Um, and you know, everybody's got their own different ideas of success, for example. So figuring out what what that is for the, each individual mentee. And then figuring out, you know, how how can I best help them to achieve this? Why do you think EDNI is important? If in fact you do think it's important within engineering and technology, I think there's quite substantial evidence to show, you know, good quality scientifically researched evidence to show that equality and diversity is beneficial for innovation in both academic and industrial environments. You know, there's been long-term studies done to, to, to actually prove this. So it's important, not just on a personal level for you know the, the careers and quality of lives of a diverse group of people, but it's actually important for science. You know, this is how we're going to make the, the biggest breakthroughs is, is through having a, a diverse group of people working on a problem because they will bring a, a wider range of experience to, to problems, be able to think more creatively and ultimately tackle, you know, some really pressing scientific problems. So I think it's it's crucial, really. And I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think we have a choice. I think it is, it is something we have to do. Right. And in terms of immediate steps, is there anything we can do to really accelerate an increase in, in ED&I? I think it's difficult to pinpoint specific actions, but I do think there needs to be a, a cultural shift towards um, what is expected of, of specifically, you know, early career stage academics. Um, and, you know, for example, making it so family friendly, family orientated, um, not expecting people to work every single weekend and all through their holidays and until 10 o'clock at night every night. 
because that is not sustainable for anybody. <laughs> but it's also extremely, uh, it's, it's going to discourage people from wanting to be involved in that culture. Um, and I don't know how we do that. It's difficult. Um, obviously, we're all under a lot of pressure to write grants, to write papers, to make have generate results. And it, it is a competitive environment. So I don't think there's an easy solution. Um, but I think it's, I think that's what we need to strive towards. I think also like I've, I've got better at not comparing myself to my colleagues all the time. So like, I think there's this kind of thing that, you know, you have to, you have to be as good as everybody else around or seemingly as good as everybody else around. You have to apply for every single grant. You have to get as big a group as you possibly can. You have to do all these things. And say, so, well, maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe you can, you know, have a slightly smaller group. You can still have a really rewarding research career. You don't have to apply for like every single grant, maybe just like, set yourself a cap every year and maybe actually that's still success and I shouldn't just I shouldn't just compare myself to you know the, the people in the department who maybe don't have as many other commitments and um, maybe you can set your own measures and your own, own goals and that is still success. I'm really bad for this because I'm really conscientious and I in the olden days used to care a lot about what other people thought of me but I'm just trying to sort of kind of deal with that and just think you know what it doesn't matter what other people think okay it matters the people who give me a job that matters and the people I work with I respect them people don't know what's going on in your life I think and they have no right to judge you know how good you are you know how you know how successful you are um and just to kind of not not worry so much about that and just you know maybe it'll be a little bit more have a better perspective on it all I guess <laughs> It's very grounding to hear your perspective on things and um, you have such a calmness and kind of, um, I don't know, you're just very solid uh, in yourself and I find that so inspiring. It's been amazing to learn about what you do and um, kind of get a hint of how you tick. Um, so thank you so much, Joe, for joining me. Well, it's been a pleasure. Again, thank you so much for the invitation. Um, it's been fantastic. That's it for this week's episode of Innovation. It was so wonderful speaking to Jo. I just find her so confident and and quietly resilient and strong. Um, there's no sort of pomp and ceremony about what she does. She's just very confident and solid in her own skin. That's the way she comes across. And it's inspiring because I think often we are always wanting to show people that we're doing well and that we're accomplished and that we're on top of everything. But for Joe, it seems like those aren't priorities. What is a priority is doing her job well and doing it for her own personal reward rather than so that everybody can see um, that she's accomplished. And I just find that so authentic and so sincere. And as a result, she seems to have so much strength and self-esteem. And I think that's what I found most kind of inspiring and aspirational about her. Um, the most powerful thing she said is that she really doesn't care what people think about her, nor does she care about fulfilling the expectations of others but to really set her own personal goals and 
to never let no be an option in terms of her ambitions. Yeah, definitely food for thought there. Thank you so much for listening this week. Please do subscribe to this podcast and maybe even rate and review it if you can. The more ratings and reviews means the more interest from those trusty algorithms, which could help increase the reach of this show. You can also catch more of this conversation on YouTube. It's all about self-discovery and self-evolution on innovation. So, as always, be kind and loving to yourselves and I wish you all a great week.